Yate, my relatives. Hello, this is Mark Charles. It is Friday, November 11th, and I'm sitting here nursing my second cup of coffee, and I wanted to have a discussion with you regarding some of the court cases that are coming up right now, especially the Indian Child Welfare Act case that's being argued in front of the Supreme Court this week. And there's a few other things I want to talk about. Obviously, we just had the midterm elections, and there's a lot of other things going on. But before I begin, let me do, as I always do, which is acknowledge I'm speaking to you from what's now called Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway, and I want to honor the Piscataway as the host of the lands where I'm living. I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands, and I just want to say how humbled I am that I'm living on these lands today. So, uh, Pamela Yate. Thanks for joining. It's good to have you here. Uh, grab your cup of coffee, everybody. Um, there's quite a few things I want to talk about. The first thing I want to make sure we mention is that today is Veterans Day. And uh, I want to honor all of our veterans, especially those who are living still, our um, family members who have lost members who were veterans. But... Uh, I want to honor the, the, the people who have put their lives on the line for the sake of our country. And I want to thank the veterans for their service. And I especially want to honor uh, our Native American veterans. Um, for those of you who have done research on this, you know that for much of our nation, or for a long time, Natives have served in our military, the U.S. military, at a higher rate than a lot of other demographic and, and groups and uh, many Native peoples have fought very proudly for this land and for this country. And so I'm sharing with you an article from Native News Online about honoring our Native American veterans on Veterans Day. And I also want to honor um, my father. So my father, Ted Charles, who is uh, the one in the cowboy hat, I guess it's on the, uh, if you're looking at it, it's on your right. Um, uh, my father, Ted Charles, is a veteran. Um, he served in the, uh, the U.S. Uh, Marine Corps. And uh, he is sitting beside Jim Northrup, as well as uh, another gentleman named Ray Early. And these are some really good friends that my father made when he was serving in the Marine Corps. And uh, both um, Jim Northrup, who is in the middle, and then Ray, who is in the wheelchair, have since passed away. But uh, these were some very good friends of both my father and myself. Um, actually, Jim Northrup and I became very good friends uh, the last maybe decade of his life as I began doing more work in the Native community and especially in the state of Minnesota where Jim uh, lived with his family. So I want to honor my father. And I want to honor all the other veterans in our nation, um, and especially our Native veterans, uh, thank them for their service uh, to this country. I'm not going to be able to go into all of the complexities behind our nation's colonial history and Veterans Day. Um, as you know, there's a lot of holidays I choose not to celebrate such as Fourth of July, um, such as uh, Thanksgiving, obviously Columbus Day and others like that. I, I do, I have chosen, I, I did decide I wanted to, to honor Veterans Day and to, to remember that day because I, and I, I don't do as much on Memorial Day. 
I see Memorial Day much more as as around the corporate um, issue of war and our history of war as a nation. But I see Veterans Day as a day to honor the, the individuals who have served. And so that's why one of the reasons I'm much more vocal about uh, um, my support for Veterans Day than I am for Memorial Day or obviously for Independence Day or other national holidays that have very oppressive, even genocidal um, uh, um, implications for Native peoples and other people of color. But uh, so today I do want to honor the veterans of our country. I want to thank all the veterans out there who have served. What I want to spend the bulk of my time talking about today is, uh, you may have seen it around, especially if you're uh, in touch with Native Twitter and uh, Native News, but the ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, is there's a case regarding the ICWA in front of the Supreme Court right now. It's um, titled Holland versus Brackeen. And I'm going to share a few stories with you. Um, the first one I'm going to share is a blog just from, well, actually, I'll, I'll share these two other from Native websites first. Um, this is Native News Online, and this is an op-ed written by a judge in Albuquerque who is very, very familiar with the issues of the Indian Child Welfare Act, and he wrote an op-ed about how whatever the ruling is um, in this case right now before the Supreme Court they will be felt for generations. I also, um, there have been a lot of Native peoples in Washington, D.C. this week, um, both trying to attend as well as protesting in front of the Supreme Court. And so I'm going to share an Indian Country Today story that talks about that. And then I'm going to share this story here from a SCOTUS blog. And I've read several articles about what's been going on this week. And this was one of the articles that was just, I thought it presented both sides fairly well. And it was just kind of a factual run through the case or the arguments, not the case, but the arguments. And so I'll put that there for you to read. Um, so those are three articles that have come out this week. And then there's one more that I want to share here. And I'm going to share this one last. It's from uh, Arizona Central. And uh, it's titled, The Supreme Court Hears Argument in Pivotal Case on Indian Child Welfare Act. And I'm going to share that there. I'll, I'll put that out there in just a minute. But the reason I want to talk about this is because the Indian Child Welfare Act is a very pivotal piece of legislation. I think it was first enacted in the 1970s, if I remember correctly. And it's essentially an act to protect Native children who for generations, almost throughout the entire history of this nation, have been stolen from their communities, from their families, from their homes, from their native nations, and brought into uh, white culture. Um, not only was this obviously the history of the boarding schools, but there has been a very uh, long pattern of non-native families adopting native children out of their tribal communities and raising them up off of reservation lands. And it's, this was a, it was, I don't know if epidemic is the right word, but it was a, it was a very serious problem that was happening. And this Indian Child Welfare Act was enacted to protect uh, these native children and to basically require that 
um, uh, living situations look be looked at first primarily by relatives or family members of where the child is coming out of, and then uh, second by members of the tribal community, the native nation where the child was born and living, and then third even by other native nations um, uh, where the child could be raised. Um, so all of those three, this was the first, the second, and the third place where they were supposed to look uh, to place a child before it could go to someone who was not from um, a, a native nation. And this has been the one of the, they've, some articles call it the golden rule of, of uh, Indian Child Welfare Act um, for decades now. And it is being challenged in court by, I think it's four... Uh, white families who are working to adopt children out of Native nations. And they took this to case. They're actually being represented by the states, I believe. Um, I know one at least is from Texas, but um, they're making their arguments and saying that the ICWA is unconstitutional. And the tendency is, as I've read through these cases, as I've already been familiar with the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, right, but as you read these cases, it feels like it gets very complex because, and especially if you read the arguments being made in front of the Supreme Court, they talk about the constitutionality of this. Is it is it constitutional to um, treat Native children, um, who again, American Indian is defined as a race within our country, to treat them differently than other children because the constitution currently doesn't allow you to treat people differently based on their race. Um, but uh, of course the history is very complex. And even in this last argument that I'm going to share from uh, the Arizona central, I'll share that with you right now. I just put it into the Twitter. There's a comment in this that says Twitter was a buzz when judge Alito said tribes don't share a common interest because they were all at war with each other before the arrival of European settlers. Um, and so, again, this is one of the things that's arguing is one of the arguments being made is that, well, if this isn't requiring the children to be treated special because of their race. They're required to be treated special because of their political entity, the native nation that they're a part of. And the goal is first and foremost to look for places to adopt these children or place these children in foster homes within their own native nation. Um, and so the argument, one of the arguments is it's not a racial um, preference. It's, it's a political or it's a, it's a, um, a native nation. It's a sovereignty question. Um, and of course, Judge Alito in thinking out loud about that said, well, can we really say it, it's a, that Native nations share a common interest because they were all at war with each other before Europeans got here. And right, this just gets into all of the history regarding our nation where the, the whole argument beginning not only with the Declaration of Independence, but going back to the Doctrine of Discovery, which identifies natives as less than human. Right, the Declaration that specifically describes us as savages, um, and the Supreme Court case precedents regarding land titles, making arguments going all the way back to 1823 that we're savages and we we uh, were only our only occupation is warfare, um, 
And so, and then the myth of America and the myth of American exceptionalism is that these white Europeans came in and they civilized this nation, this continent, as they completed their manifest destiny and they have civilized our tribes. And this was even the, one of the arguments for boarding schools was, you know, just by giving them proximity to whiteness, right? This will allow them to become more civilized and more quickly. Um, and it was used to justify a very broad range of atrocities. And this is the thinking in the Supreme Court of Judge Alito when he's like, well, they're all savages there. He didn't say savages, but they're all at war, applying we were savages, applying that's all we did. And this is just going back to the exact same white supremacist argument that this case has made for so long, this, this country has made for so long. And the reason I say this seems complex is it does, if you listen to what people are saying, Yes, it seems complex. We have a constitution that le doesn't let you break things apart by race. We have uh, an, an act that was specifically written for Native American children, American Indian children, which is the definition, the, the racial designation that this country created for Native peoples. Um, and But it's trying to acknowledge they created this act because of the history of genocide against Native peoples and right, it seems very complex. But when you start looking at what they're arguing, arguing it, it, it's only complex because our nation not only was very colonial, but still is today deeply colonial. If you go back and look at that first op-ed that I shared, uh, the one on Native News Online, about how the, the, the ruling in this case is going to be felt for generations. One of the, one of the statements that this, this author writes repeatedly in this um, article, and I'm going to actually just share it right here so you can see where I'm looking at it on, on my page. Um, but one of the arguments, or one of the things that this... Uh, this author is pointing out, oh, that's the Veterans Day, sorry. I'm looking for this one. In the third paragraph, it says, Congress emphasized the special relationship the United States has with Indian tribes and tribal members, and that the U.S. has a direct interest, a trustee, in protecting Indian children who are members of or are eligible for membership in an Indian tribe. Congress also found that there is no resource that is more vital to the continued existence and integrity of Indian tribes than their children. And so what I want to focus on is this direct interest, this trustee relationship that Congress feels that it has for American Indians and for our children. Um, and this is where Again, it feels like it gets complex, but when you understand our colonial nature, uh, the colonial nature of this country, it's not nearly as complex as they're trying to make it be. So when you talk about a trustee, and I just Googled this, this definition online, a trustee is an individual, person, or member of a board given control or powers of administration of property in trust with a legal obligation to administer it solely for the purposes specified. So a trustee is basically a legal representation 
representative for someone who is not able to represent themselves for whatever reason. So they will get a trustee. A child will have a trustee. And the notion that the U.S. government, whatever branch, right, the executive, the, the legislative, the judicial, <laughs> any branch of the U.S. government could be designated as a trustee for Native people in any capacity is absurd, right? This, the, the, the founding documents of this nation dehumanize Natives as savages. We have Supreme Court case precedents today referencing land titles are based on the fact that we are not human and therefore we do not have sovereignty over our lands, right? The entire goal of this, the history of this nation has been to ethnically cleanse and commit genocide against Native peoples as white Europeans completed their self-proclaimed manifest destiny over these lands. And this is, this is like if you have someone who robs a bank and there's a driver of the car and they get arrested as they're fleeing the scene and they, they take the guy who went into the bank and robbed it and they put that person in jail or maybe they, even, they, just, they just remove them or take the money from them. And then they put it in charge. They put the other guy, the driver of the car is the trustee who has to be in charge of returning the money to its proper owners. <laughs> it's, right, it's laughable, right? I, obviously, they're both absolutely complicit in this injustice. And the fact that one could even pretend to be a trustee with any sort of integrity for um, the people that they were harming is laughable at best. And yet that is the situation we have. That is the legal situation we have in this country where this government sees itself as a trustee for Native peoples, literally protecting Native peoples from the government itself. Right? This is, this is how absurd the myth of American exceptionalism and the lie of white supremacy is when, when the, the government thinks it's so superior and supreme and exceptional that it can actually govern itself to protect other entities from itself. This is just, it's laughable. And yet that's the argument that we're hoping will win this case right? It's the argument that, yes, we want this trustee relationship because, as you can see, without that relationship, our Native children are just going to be adopted out all around the country with no regard for the sovereignty of the nations where these children were born. And so what we're rooting for is for the upholding of this trustee relationship. But the trustee relationship, this parent-child relationship, this legal representative relationship that the U.S. government has anointed itself with over Native nations is based on the doctrine of discovery and the belief that we're not fully human and we're not therefore given the right to represent ourselves. So yeah, this case is complex, but only because 
of the why of white supremacy and the myth of American exceptionalism and the fact that this nation is so damn colonial it doesn't even know where its head is. So I don't even know what to root for in this case. I don't even know what is a good outcome. Because if they rule in favor of keeping these children within their communities, if they rule in favor of upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act, which, right, that just reinforces this trusty relationship, which perpetuates then the dehumanizing viewpoint of American Indians. But if it's overturned, then our children are just going to start bleeding out of our communities again, as this nation has been trying to do for generations. So it's very complex. And I don't know how to root. I don't know what the best outcome of this is. They're both challenging outcomes. One will have an immediate relief but will perpetuate the long-term injustices. The other will cause immediate damage. And this is where it just becomes almost absurd, right? Because this nation is so unbelievably colonial and it thinks so incredibly highly of itself that it thinks it has the ability to make a decision on behalf of other peoples without their consent, without their input. Based on other Supreme Court case presidents, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court has no integrity, no business at all ruling. I think every single judge in that case, especially the ones that were there in 2005 when they ruled that natives don't have sovereignty over their own lands, they should all recuse themselves from this case. I, I, yeah, I think the Supreme Court, I would love it if the Supreme Court just stood up and said, we have no, no integrity to solve this. We are so deeply entwined and ingrained in this colonial mindset that we have no legal standing no integrity, no moral standing to make any kind of a ruling about this whatsoever. But that's not going to happen, right? These people think far too highly of themselves. This nation thinks far too much of itself to do that. So here we are. Rooting, just like we're voting, which is for the least evil of the two options in front of us. Which I think is how this nation runs itself. So anyway, yeah, the more I think about this, the more I get into the, the, the weeds with this, the more frustrated, obviously, as you hear me talking, I become. And so, uh, all right, and this is the same thing. If you watch me even this, these past few days, uh, the midterm election, right? It's, it's so difficult to feel like you're, uh, it's a deep reminder of this nation. If you saw my tweet the other day where I said, you know, I'm a native man living in Washington, D.C. The Declaration of Independence calls my native savages. The Constitution specifically excludes us. 
my nation, the Navajo Nation, 26,000 square miles, doesn't have a single complete congressional district inside of it, even though it's larger than 10 other states or the 40th largest state. And now I live in the District of Columbia where we don't have representation in the House of Representatives or the Senate. So tell me, how is it that this 2022 election is going to decide whether democracy lives or dies? It's like, all right, if you're a person of color, this nation has never been democratic. It's been white landowning men deciding the fate of the rest of the people that they deem subhuman. They're slowly, slowly inching to give up some of their grip on that control, but they haven't even come close to fully doing it yet. And we just have to remind ourselves of that. We have to remind ourselves that, yeah, a lot of what we're doing is, is a mirage because the white landowning male has such a firm grip on things that it's really only in symbolism, which is what Joe Biden is so into, right? He loves, anyway. So yeah, so this is the things that that feel very frustrating during these moments is there's certain reminders. And now we're, it's the potential, right, that we're going to have Donald Trump and Joe Biden running against each other in 2024, right, which is laughable. Um, if, if we end up literally with those two men running against each other again, um, it, yeah, that, <laughs> that is going to be a laughable situation. Um, so, there's a lot of things that feel very frustrating at the moment. But I want to share some things that are a little hopeful too. And maybe you saw this, maybe you haven't yet, but um, this week the Phoenix Suns introduced a new uh, city uniform for their, uh, for their team. And they're acknowledging that Arizona has 22 Native nations within its borders and a large percentage of its lands are native lands. And they decided to make a jersey um, representing that and to do some promotion through Nike and through some other of their sponsors uh, regarding this. And so I, I just put this into the Twitter. The, I, I put the video where you can catch the video on their, on their Twitter feed. I'm also going to share their website where you can... Um, where you can uh, view the same video on their website. I encourage you to watch it. It's actually, it's an encouraging video because, right, especially after living here in D.C. where we've had the Washington football team and its uh, racist mascot issues and other racist mascot issues around the country. For the Suns, a, a, a very good basketball team um, that doesn't have a racist mascot, but yet choosing very proactively to honor the Native nations that live within its state borders. Um so if you have a chance, I really encourage you to watch that video. Um, it actually, it, it gave me some hope. I found it very encouraging as I watched it. And then the last thing I want to just talk about a little bit here is my speaking schedule. So yesterday I was at the Northern Virginia Community College in Loudoun, uh, the Loudoun campus, not too far outside of D.C., about 45 minutes away. And I had a chance to speak to, it was a smaller group of people. Um, it was part of their 
diversity and inclusion uh, lecture series that they have one a month on one of the different campuses around the the entire community can um, community college campus system for the Northern Virginia. But uh, they recorded it and they're going to make it available to all the rest of their campuses as well. And so it was I was very grateful. And the, the theme, the title of my topic yesterday was uh, shifting the paradigm. And I chose to uh, acknowledge that right my busiest part of my year um, for my speaking happens between Columbus Day, our Indigenous Peoples Day, and Thanksgiving. Those six to seven weeks, I earn about half of my annual speaking income uh, during those six to seven weeks. I have usually almost event every single week, sometimes multiple events a week. I'm traveling a lot. I'm very, very busy. And so I chose in my, in my lecture yesterday to look at three of the paradigms within that time frame. And I, I, looked at, I looked at shifting the paradigm of discovery and talked about you know, how it's good that we are shifting from celebrating Columbus Day to celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, but because the doctrine of discovery is still the legal precedent for land titles, we're not even close to being done. Um, and there is so much more we have to do. And if we think we've we've reached a milestone just because we're switching this holiday, but we're not getting anywhere on land titles, right? This is where we have to just acknowledge we have a long, long, long way to go. And then I spent the bulk of my lecture shifting the paradigm on Abraham Lincoln. And I went through the history of Abraham Lincoln, not only demonstrating how he was a blatant, unapologetic and self-proclaimed white supremacist, but he was one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. That's actually in my book too. If you read chapters nine and 10 of Unsettling Truths, that content is in there. I have other things I put out there about that. And then the last paradigm I chose to address is the paradigm of Thanksgiving. And I looked at both the mythology of the first Thanksgiving in 1621 at Plymouth, Massachusetts. I looked at the great dying of 1616 to 1619. I looked at the celebration of King James in um, creating the New England land charter. Um, and then I looked at, you know, the whole mythology of that first Thanksgiving. And then I looked at, um, after laying out the history of Abraham Lincoln, I looked at his Thanksgiving Day proclamations in 1863 and 1864 and demonstrated how he was literally calling in his effort to unify this nation, right, to preserve the union, he was calling for a national day of thanksgiving to thank God, to give thanks for the fruits of the genocide that he was actively committing. And I just, I laid out, like, we have to shift these paradigms, right? We have to understand we have a lot more work to do about discovery. We have to acknowledge because the victors write the history and we've never lost a war that matters. We don't know crap about Abraham Lincoln. Everything we know about him is a myth. And then we have to look at what we're really celebrating on Thanksgiving, which is it's a, it's a holiday rooted in European, white Europeans thanking God for the genocide and ethnic cleansing of native peoples. 
And then I ended with a discussion about common memory and how we need to talk about our history honestly so that we can have a healthier community moving forward. It was a hard lecture for people to hear, especially, you know, it's, it's a lot in, in, in one sitting. It's about 45-minute lecture. Had a pretty good Q&A afterwards. Had a great discussion with both participants as well as are the students and staff who were there, as well as some of the people who uh, we went out for lunch afterwards and had some really good discussion. So that was very encouraging. I'm, I'm headed next week. I, I um, fly out to Los Angeles next week. And I'm speaking at the L.A. Los Angeles City College, and they have what they call their Day of Gratitude. I'm sharing this here, um, be, not not because uh, um, this is not a public event. So um, unfortunately, if you're in the L.A. area, you can't come and see me speak at this event um, because it's a it's a dinner a. a a very nice dinner for the students and the faculty and other special guests of the, of the college. And so I can't just lay out a, a blanket invitation. Um, if you are in the LA area and you're really interested in trying to go, feel free to direct message me. And I do have ability to have a few tickets set aside. There's a few people who contacted me, but I can't just lay out a public invitation. So, but that's going to be this coming Tuesday, November 15th. And the event um, is over lunch. It starts at noon and goes till about two. Um, and so I will be the speaker. And I'm actually really excited. I'm very excited. They've asked me literally to, I mean, we talked about the topics I can talk about, especially around history and the doctrine of discovery and the themes of my book that I co-authored with Sung Chan Ra. And we decided to really address the issue of Thanksgiving. And so the talk I'm giving at this presentation uh, at LA City College, it's going to be very similar to the talk I gave yesterday at uh, at the Northern uh, Virginia Community College, um, and I'm really looking forward to that. And then next week, I also travel to Oberlin uh, College in Oberlin, o Ohio. I fly into Cleveland, and I will be speaking at a campus-wide event um, I, that is open to the public. Um, on Thursday evening. I don't have the time and dates or the times and location for that yet. I believe that event will be open to the public. And so once I know that, I'll share that on my social media. And then um, on Friday, I'm hoping to be in a few uh, campus uh, classrooms on campus, engaging more with students during the day on Friday. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then we'll be, I'll be back here in DC uh, um, the end of next week. But yeah, so it's, it's a it's a great schedule coming up. I'm looking forward to it. I love the opportunity to have dialogue um, like I'm having right now. I love the opportunity to travel and meet new people and to engage this content with audiences all around the country. And so I'm going to share one more thing. And this is just um, on my website. I am still running a special um, throughout the entire month of November, where if you buy a signed copy or copies of Unsettling Truth, I will uh, ship them to you. Uh, um, I will give you free shipping. So if you buy a signed copy of Unsettling Truth from my website, 
I will um, ship them to you for uh, give you free shipping to, to give them to you. So it's $20 for the book, but I will not add a shipping cost onto that. So it's uh, free shipping for the entire month of November. So if you have been waiting to get a signed copy of Unselling Truths, if you know someone who would like to read it, you'd like to gift it to them, um, you can order those copies on my website at wirelesshogan.com. But anyway, it's been great to talk with all of you, my relatives. Mary, thanks for joining so good to to see you and to have you on here today who else is on here evelyn yat a thank you for joining susan yat a thank you for joining tracy um uh yat a it's i i just saw your comment tracy i'm if you don't mind i'm well you shared it here so i'm going to just highlight it here uh tracy shared that she's an adopted indian um uh and white and you have not felt like you belong in any group and now you're 52. I lament with you, Tracy, right? This is the challenges that we're facing as a nation. Um, this is one of the things the Indian Child Welfare Act was meant to correct and to try and solve. But um, obviously it's a very, very complicated issue because of the fact that our nation was and continues to be so incredibly colonial. So thank you for sharing that comment with uh, with us today, Tracy. Um, so I want to thank everyone for joining today. It's been good to have you here. I hope your second cup of coffee is as good as mine is. I hope your Veterans Day is going well. If you know a veteran, please reach out to them and thank them for their service. Um, and uh, walk in beauty, my relatives. And may we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Shahat and Hakonat.